0: Welcome to Dig the History Podcast. <laughs>
1: Today, for the most part, we dread wakes and funerals. The traditional American funeral is somber and quiet, full of people dressed in black, milling about, making painful small talk and trying desperately to pretend that it's fine. It's fine. Everything is fine. And eating this like horrible, weird mishmash of foods that people just bring to your house. Um, Our funerals are, for the most part, cleansed there's nothing visceral nothing really overly emotional and no real contact with the dead
0: but we know that this isn't the way that all people deal with death in tibet some people practice sky burials where after a ceremony corpses are cut apart and left on a mountaintop where their bodies decompose in the elements with the help of birds bugs and animals Other cultures, like the Irish, wake the dead with drinking, singing, telling stories, and other festivities. In Madagascar, the Malagasy people disinter the the dead, dance with the bodies, and re-wrap corpses in silk fabric to help speed the decomposition process. Every culture and subculture deals with death differently, and we each believe our approach is the best. People are
1: often surprised to learn that, yes, even death has a history. In fact, death can actually be a powerful tool for unlocking the ways that people thought about themselves, their world, and one another, both for historians and for people of different cultures trying to relate to one another. Today, we're talking about death and how two vastly different cultures used it to try to relate to one another in early modern Canada. I'm Sarah. And I'm Newt Gingrich. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: you should know i
1: always try to mess you up
0: i saw it before you did it but i was gonna do it with a straight face but then i'm sure people could hear my face giggles your face giggles i'm Avril earls
1: and we are your historians for this episode of dig Today, we're going to talk about one very specific encounter around death and death ways that took place in the mid-1600s in what is now Ontario, Canada. And before we even get started, I just want to mention our source for this episode. We're basing everything, really, in this episode on just one book called The Huron-Wendat Feast of the Dead, Indian-European Encounters in Early North America. And it's actually written by one of our professors at the University of Buffalo, Eric Seaman, who I think has actually made more podcast appearances mm-hmm. than any of our other <laughs> really like professors. Him. Yeah. I think work. it's just that his work resonates with the kind of history that we all do mm-hmm. in various ways. So he mm-hmm. makes lots of cameos even though he doesn't generally know it because he's not on any social media and and has no idea. But we'll let him know.
0: We'll let like Victoria know.
1: Yeah. Um so I, I promise that he did not ask us to like shill his book for him. Um, you know, we're not like being, this is not a paid endorsement. We just, uh, you know, we're really compelled by this book.
0: Unless this publisher Um, does want to throw a couple bucks our way. Yeah.
1: If you you want to pay us, that would be great. Um, So I just want to preface this entire conversation by saying that you should pause right now to take a page out of our, out of the book of our friends, just a story pod. Um, They always tell people pause right now, turn off the podcast, go to Amazon, buy this book, um, And then come back it's really beautifully written it's very easy to read i promise you won't regret it okay so now let's dig in (laughs) aren't we cute all right so we need to first start with the huron wendat a tribe of native americans who lived in this strip of land between the northern shore of lake ontario Um, and Lake Simcoe in what is now Ontario, Canada, kind of this narrow area between these two lakes. The Europeans, when they first encountered the Huron-Wendat, came to call them the Hurons, which meant something like ruffian, which is, you know, certainly not a compliment. This was not what the tribe called themselves. As with most Native American tribes, they were sort of renamed when they made contact with Europeans. And I think we talked about this a little bit um, in some of our History Buffs episodes when we talked about the Iroquois specifically. Mm -hmm. The Iroquois was the name that was given to that tribe by Europeans, but the tribe actually called themselves the Haudenosaunee. Um, In the case of the Huron, the actual name of the tribe was the Wendat. So um, just as a side note, throughout this episode, we typically are going to refer to them as the Wendat. Um, But some people today identify as Huron. Some people identify today as Wendat. So the naming conventions here are a little mixed up. The Wendat, um, which are also sometimes called the Wyandot, and we'll get into that much later on in the episode, why that happens. Um, This tribe was a confederacy more than it was an actual tribe. It was made up of smaller tribes that lived in various locations around this area in what is now Ontario. Those smaller tribes were the bear people, the rock people, the deer people, and the cord making people. This is also, again, very similar to the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee, who were also a confederacy known as the Six Nations, made up of the Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Seneca, Cayuga, and Tuscarora. So there's lots of overlaps here. And these tribes lived in very close proximity to one another, but they did not get along. They were enemies. And we'll see that again later on in the episode.
0: The Wendat creation story told that the world was created when Sky Woman, or Ataensik, fell from the clouds to the earth, which at the time was made entirely out of water. Because Ataensik couldn't survive in just the water, the water animals rushed to make an island on the back of a turtle for Ataensik to land on. This island became Wendake, the area between Lake Ontario and Lake Simcoe where the Wendat lived. Sky Woman was pregnant when she fell, and she soon gave birth to a baby girl, who grew up and also became magically pregnant, bearing twin boys, Tawaskaran and Ioskeha. The boys did not get along well, and eventually Ioskeha murdered his brother. But the death was not for nothing. Tawaskaran's blood became pieces of flint, which was the critical stone that the Wendat Used for their arrowheads and other tools. Without this death, they would not have had would not have their much needed arrows and axes. The
1: remaining brother, Ayuskeha and Ataensik, lived together in a longhouse in the in a village. This was what the Wendat envisioned as the land of the dead. When when. When Wendat people died, eventually their souls would join Ataensik and Ayuskeha in this village and live a life that looked very much like the one that they had while they
0: were living. The Wendat grew corn and other crops, but they also acted as sort of middlemen in the fur trade. Tribes from the south, who focused largely on agriculture, brought their excess dried corn to the Wendat, who held it and traded it on their behalf to tribes from further north, who brought furs from Beaver, Martin, and Fox. The Wendat weren't just capitalists. Their culture placed a high value on luxury goods, which we'll spend a lot more time talking about later, but they also placed value on being hospitable and having good relationships with neighboring tribes. In the 1600s, Wendake had about 25 villages that were each home to anywhere between 500 and 1,500 people. In these villages, there were longhouses, about 15 in each village, that served as communal housing. Each family had a distinct space within the longhouse, but multiple families lived in the same structure. Around the outside of these longhouses were cornfields, where the women of the village grew the crops that sustained the people throughout the year.
1: Souls were incredibly important to Wendat culture. Almost everything had a soul. People, animals, plants, even rocks. The Wendat performed rituals to honor any animal or fish that they had to kill in order to sustain themselves and treated the bodies of animals with deep respect. For instance, they would never give their dogs the bones of an animal that they had eaten. It would have to be disposed of with respect. Animal spirits who felt disrespected had the ability to return and ruin hunting and fishing prospects for the Wendat people by telling other animals how to escape from the hunters. So if you treated um, your game with disrespect, it would actually ruin your prospects of um, getting more game in the future. Even inanimate objects, uh, especially large and prominent objects like unusually shaped rocks or landscape features, um, were... Also endowed with souls. If something was particularly awe-inspiring, it might need to be appeased with an offering or extra respect. Uh, And this actually reminds me of how people do things like kiss or rub certain rocks or statues for luck. Um, Have you ever been in a place where there's like a statue that you had to like...
0: Uh, The Blarney Stone in Ireland?
1: Yeah, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, Eric Seaman in the book gives... The story about a rock that looked like a person that was holding two arms up, and as Wendots walked past it, they would leave some tobacco as tribute for the rock because it it had this appearance, and so it must have a spirit within it. Um, and this actually reminds me of how at my college we had a statue of the Greek goddess Minerva at the front door of the main building that you know, you walked past her like a million times. And we were always leaving things for her like we would put her she had her hands kind of held out in this certain way and you could put things in her hands. Mm-hmm. So she always would have like flowers or leaves or something held in her hands because people would like leave her presence, um, especially during like times where there were like festivities on campus. You know, mm-hmm. you would have to go kind of take your pilgrimage to Minerva and give her something.
0: Precious. Even the sun and the sky had souls. Obviously these were the manifestations of the first people Ioskeha and his grandmother Ataensik. These were spirits who could be incredibly loving and useful and helpful, helping to heal or bring about good harvests, but they could just as easily get angry and spiteful and cause there to be accidents or bad weather. Ioskeha and Ataensik were appeased with sacrifices of tobacco and other things. Wendat people believed that a powerful tool of communication with the spirit world was through dreams, and that dreams held serious significance and needed to be properly and thoroughly interpreted. Dreams held powerful messages that Wendats needed to follow through on. For, for instance, dreaming that you needed to cook a big dinner for your neighbors meant waking up and getting to work to make that meal. Ignoring a dream wasn't an option. Spirits who felt unheard could cause misfortune, particularly making people sick or causing them to die suddenly.
1: I feel like this could get awkward. Mm-hmm. Because if you're like... Sex dream! Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Like, you had a dream that you had a very romantic evening, shall we say, with, like with your neighbor. And you're like, I'm sorry, but I just had this dream where we were supposed to, you know... And if we don't, then the
0: spirits are going to be mad at us. Somebody's and... going to die if we don't bone right now. <laughs> it's like the best pickup line ever. <laughs> oh, see, somehow we
1: knew that we would bring it back to sex. Uh, always. We could talk much, much longer just about the fascinating points of Wendat culture and religion, but we really need to get down to the creepy stuff. How did the Wendat deal with death? First, death was not something that the Wendat people feared. The dying were not even supposed to show in any way that they were afraid of their impending death, even as those around them began to make preparations for the funeral. Um, the Wendat were a very stoic people in all things, even unto the point of kind of torture. It was, there were these torture rituals that they enacted and had enacted upon them mm-hmm. when they came into conflict conflict with other tribes. And you were expected to be completely stoic not show any emotion or pain through that process um women as they were giving birth weren't supposed to make noise or cry out or scream um so very stoic people um this uh this need for stoicism and this not not fearing death was most obvious in the atha tie-on. again if you are wendat here on Wendot, and we are pronouncing these words wrong please forgive us Otherwise known as the, the farewell feast. This actually reminds me of when some people today who know that they're dying choose to have parties as they're getting closer to death. I think that I actually think that my uncle and aunt did this as my uncle was coming towards the end of his life. But I can't remember exactly. I know they had some small dinner parties where people came over to like kind of say goodbye. Um, mm-hmm. But it maybe wasn't as massive as one of these farewell feasts. But it also reminds me of the episode of Grace and Frankie. Have you seen this one? No. But they have this massive party for their friend because she's got a terminal illness. And so she says, I want to have this huge party. You need to help me throw this huge party because at the end of it, I'm going to kill myself. Hmm. And they have this great party. No one knows why they're having this great party. And then at the end, she dies. This episode's a real.
0: <laughs> well, Grace and Frankie's are real. <laughs>
1: yeah. So... This is actually not all that foreign, this idea of having a farewell feast. Isn't it actually not all that foreign, even though it took place hundreds and hundreds of years ago in a very different
0: culture? The farewell feast required the women of the village to cook the very best meal they could offer, and the very best cuts of meat would be given to the dying person. Once they had eaten, the dying person would give a sort of speech, where they would tell their friends and family how they were not afraid of death and how they looked forward to entering the spirit world. If they were a warrior, they would sing their death song, a common feature in many native uh, tribes. But overall, the feast was fairly happy. People shared stories and laughed and shared memories. When the person finally died,
1: that happy mood disappeared. Female friends and family members wailed and cried while adult men, again, were stoic and silent. And I'm going to actually just quote this right from the book because it's just really well put. It says, quote, the mourners worked themselves into a passion by remembering others who had died, crying out, and my father died, and my mother died, and my cousin is dead, and so on and so on through all of their deceased relatives. Finally, after enough collective anguish had been expressed, an elder called out, it's enough, stop weeping. That's end quote. Now, I just have to share that when I was reading this, I actually I actually paused and said to my husband, this is how it should still be. This this like mourners working themselves into a passion and screaming like my father is dead and my mother is dead and my cousin is dead. Because, you know, that when you have a terrible loss like this, it dredges everything up Mm -hmm. and everything that is sad that has like ever happened to you. And sometimes you just feel like I'm going to be sad forever. Everything sucks. Everyone is dead and everyone is going to die. We should just give up. Mm -hmm. We should just put on sweatpants and drink wine and lay on the couch and just sob until we die. Like you just sort of feel like that. And so I love this kind of sanctioned thing where there was a set time where people could just lose their shit. Right. Mm -hmm. People could just scream and sob and get everything off of their chest. And then somebody else steps in and says, "Okay, like it's time to stop now. Like you've gotten that out. Um, It just sounds really wonderfully cathartic to me. Um, But this, of course, would require emotions.
0: Which you don't have. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So after the weeping was cut off, they would carefully fold the body up into the fetal position and then wrap it up in a beaver skin robe and lay it on a mat to await its funeral ceremony. When everyone was gathered from surrounding villages... They would have another feast, this time called the Hagochin a Tuskeen, or the Feast of Souls. Depending on the status of the dead person, the feast would be bigger or smaller. All people had a feast, but higher status people just had bigger and more lavish feasts. It was believed that the spirit of the dead person was still there, partaking in the feast, gaining strength for the journey the soul would then take. During the feast, leaders and elders would give speeches like eulogies meant to comfort the mourners. Then came the time for burial, when things get very interesting and a little creepy. What I actually is wrote. that? I actually, <laughs> I actually wrote it like that. She did. She wrote it like that. <laughs>
1: It's trying to make you act. Halloween. Exactly. I'm trying to up yeah, the I'm creep factor. I'm sure people factor. love their cultural practices. We call this <laughs> well, does get creepy. It's
0: creepy. I think deadness is creepy. Right. You're creepy. I am creepy. As deadness. I have no soul. He's called Sorry. deadness. Deadness. The act of being dead. Deadness is the act of being dead. The age and status and cause of death dictated what would happen to the corpse. Very young babies would be buried by a path, so it would always be very close to passers-by. This would keep the spirit close to the young women of the village, so it might be born again. For the people who had the misfortune to freeze to death or drown, both deaths that were believed to be caused by the sky spirit's anger, the corpse had to be disposed of in a highly symbolic way that might appease the sky spirit. So it had to be burned, but in a particular way, where the body was cut up, and disemboweled, with some flesh and bowels burned in a fire, and the rest of the body buried.
1: But almost all Wendots received the same burial, and actually, burial isn't even quite the right word, because there's n- really no burial being taken. There's really no burial taking place until the very, very end of this story. Um, the corpse was carefully carried out to a scaffold, which was made from four poles with a platform in the middle that was made out of bark. The body would be placed onto this platform, which would be something like eight or ten feet off of the ground. When the body was placed on the platform, the man who was officiating would distribute funeral gifts. Mourners would bring gifts, some of which would be left with the dead person to take with them into the spirit world. These gifts both helped to curry favor with the spirit world and with the living, helping to show your fellow villagers how generous and good you could be. After this ceremony, the mourners would go back to the village where the closest family members, usually uh, just widows and widowers, would go into deep mourning. They did this for about 10 days where they did not leave the longhouse and laid face down on a mat, covered with fur blankets and without talking to anyone. They could only say good day to someone who came in. And that was it. Um, when they were coming out of this period of mourning, they would have a chunk of their hair shaved off of their head. Not their entire head. Just like a chunk of hair would be cut off. Mm. And this remained as a highly visible mark of their loss. And I, again, I actually really love this for a couple of reasons. First, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to just go into your room and cover yourself up with blankets and not be bothered for a while after going through this kind of devastating loss. Like 10 days sounds actually really nice. Yeah. Like, no one can talk to you. Well, people can talk to you, but you don't have to talk to them. Good day. You just, I said good day. Exactly. You're covered in blankies. <laughs> people bring you food mm-hmm. and you're just like, now f- off, right? Like get out of here. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's fantastic. Blankies. Um. Instead of doing all this stupid stuff that you have to do, like talk to insurance people and credit card companies and talk to other humans and arrange for funerals and all that bullshit, you're just kind of like, nope, I'm out. I'm going to lay under my beaver pelts. Mm. Nobody talk to me, which I'm really all about.
0: We don't have enough beaver pelts in this culture.
1: It's it's true. Um, I agree with that. And then to have the loss marked on you so that everyone that you saw knew what you had been through so you didn't have to try to act normal mm. afterward you know having been through this quite a few times i just think that this would be so much better than trying to go back and just having people assume that everything is great right um instead there would be this mark on you that everyone could see okay this is what she's going through like maybe we should um i don't know not talk about it or whatever it's just so the people knew um i sort of i sort of like that idea
0: This was actually only the first part of a Huron-Wendat funeral. The burial, quote-unquote, on the scaffold was only the first part of the process. For centuries, the Huron-Wendat people had been burying their dead twice. First, they would leave the bodies, the wrapped bodies of the deceased, on the scaffold. And once a year, they would take the bodies down and rebury them in small mass graves. But as populations grew, the tradition changed. Instead of coming together once a year to rebury the dead, these second funerals were spaced out by several years and became much, much larger. When the Huron-Wendat arrived in the area of Ontario that they call Wendake, the smaller groups, almost like clans, um, and villages used these second funerals as a time when all the people of the larger tribe gathered. This is when it truly became the Feast of the Dead, Around the same time, it became part of the ritual to rebury the dead with items that scholars call grave goods, items that could help to determine your status or place in society. Remember those funeral gifts we talked about earlier? Grave goods functioned in largely the same way. These were often things like clay pipes and beads, but after contact with Europeans, many manufactured goods from Europe became very popular and prestigious grave goods. So what did this second burial look like? First, it required that people go out to their cemeteries, those scaffolds that were outside of the village that held the decaying bodies of the dead, and gather their loved ones' corpses. They went to an official, the keeper of the graves, who (laughs) would go up onto the scaffold, gather their loved ones' body, and bring it down to the family. They would then open up the coffin made of tree bark, and inspect the dead body, weeping and grieving all over again. If their loved one had been up on the scaffold for a really long time, they would find mostly, and sometimes only, bones. That's how bodily decay happened. You know, it's that's true. How, that's how it works.
1: Yes. And sometimes, I should interject, I know we said that um, these, once you get into the mid-17th century, um, these... Feasts of the dead are becoming further and further spaced apart. Mm -hmm. This particular one that we're going to focus on today, um, it was, um, it had been 12 years since the last time there was a second burial.
0: So some of them would, like you said, be just Just bones. bones. As you know, if you watch the hit TV series, Bones. It's true. But if their loved ones were more recently deceased, they might find something a bit more gruesome. Bodies in various degrees of putrefaction. Crawling with worms and insects and uh, not smelling very pleasant. Either way, they needed to prepare the bodies for their second internment. That's right. They had to prepare the bodies for burial
1: in an ossuary. In other words, a grave that is just for skeletal remains. Families used tools to scrape the skin and the flesh from the bones of the dead and then placing the skin and, bo- skin and flesh into a fire. Then they disarticulated the skeleton. In other words, taking the skeleton apart at the joints. Once that had been accomplished, they bundled the bones up into a fresh beaver skin robe. Things were a little less straightforward if the person was even more freshly dead. In this case, um, it wasn't always really possible to remove the flesh from the skeletal remains. In those cases, they just carefully removed as much as they could, uh, particularly any portions that were um, decomposing, you know, more rapidly and any portions that were infested with maggots or bugs, sort of cleaning those um, creatures off of the body and then rewrapped in another clean beaver skin robe. All of this was rich with meaning. First, First, we need to understand that the Wendat did not believe that the soul was released to go to Ata Ensiks village, or paradise, or heaven, or whatever you want to call it, when the person died. Instead, after that first burial, the spirit stayed relatively close to the cemetery, staying in close contact with the village. The spirits of the dead didn't leave. They stayed right there with their families and loved ones, involved in their daily life, watching the comings and goings of the village. It was this second burial that would unlock the next phase of their spirit journey. Wendats believed that people had two spirits. The only way to release the second spirit was to prepare it through this second burial process. And it was the second burial that would release that second spirit so that it could go to at village. So cleaning the bones, touching them, wrapping them in their new burial robes was an incredibly important moment both for the living and for the dead, where people acted out their love for their friends and family so that they could finally be released into the afterlife. And I just want to give an example from the book of what this might have looked like to kind of drive home just how poignant this could be. A European observer describing... Um, Excuse me. A European observer described seeing a woman preparing the body of both her father and the bodies of several of her dead children for their reburial. And she said or he he says, quote, I admired the tenderness of one woman toward her father and children. She combed his hair and handled his bones one after the other, the bones of his of her father, with as much affection as if she would have desired to restore him to life. She took the bones of her children and she put on their arms bracelets of porcelain and glass beads and bathed their bones with her tears. I mean, how heartbreaking is that? I mean, can you Im- I can't I can't even imagine like, you know, months or years after losing a child, going back to that child's body and being so intimate with its decaying corpse. I I, I mean, it's just kind of mind blowing. But um, I don't say this to to insinuate oh how creepy and gross right. um, this was seen as the, the ultimate loving act hmm. for your family member
0: once the bodies were prepared the families each took their oh disarticulating your skeleton the families each took their dead into their homes where they recognized the moment with a small feast complete with chanting and singing to honor the dead The next day, they gathered up their bones and other supplies and began the journey to the central location where the Feast of the Dead would be held. And we're going to talk pretty specifically about one particular Feast of the Dead that took place in 1636. This feast took place in a village called Osasani. It took place in early May. Uh, Actually, it was specifically Saturday, May 10th, 1636. Very specific. Very specific. But there was bad weather, so it was uh, postponed until the 12th. Feasts took place at various times of the year, but it almost always was within the spring and summer months, when, you know, it's, like, nice to have feasts and be outside together. Um, And this particular date held a great deal of meaning for the Wendat, but for others as well. For instance what do we think about in the spring rebirth renewal regrowth
1: right even people who aren't religious right, right. the spring has this kind of symbolic meaning of regrowth and rebirth
0: because there's green things again. right yeah if you're christian you're thinking about resurrection as easter takes place in the early spring um, this would have been on the minds of the wendat too except a different kind of rebirth and renewal the sprouting of the critical corn and other crops the reemergence of the game and fish, and with the Feast of the Dead, the release of the spirits into Ataansek's village. This might not mesh really easily in our brains because it's hard to think about the spring, warm, sunny, optimistic, with a massive, morbid, and sort of creepy funeral. But the Feast of the Dead was also like a huge reunion where people of different tribes all came together and celebrated. So things were actually pretty joyous and festive. Right, People showed off their archery and knife skills, held little competitions and contests. They ate and drank and chatted and enjoyed each other's company.
1: That sort of sounds like people were showing off their archery and knife skills by like shooting and stabbing one another. But that's not actually. They were like, you know, shooting trees and things and, like, like that. <laughs>
0: Swinging their knife around their fingers, exactly. and like throwing yeah. it over their head and catching it behind their back. Right. Yes. <laughs> not Those their, are knife skills. Not their
1: stabbing skills.
0: <laughs> Sweet bow staff skills. <laughs> Finally,
1: the time came, if, you know, it was a little delayed by this bad weather, uh, for the big event. Everyone gathered around a massive pit dug into the ground. I mean, really massive. This was about 10 feet deep and 30 feet in diameter. By the pit was a massive scaffold, much larger than the ones that people would have had in their villages. When the people gathered by the pit, they grouped themselves into their village groups and then into their family groups and then handed over funeral gifts to be hung off of the scaffolding where they could be seen and admired by all of the attendants. Um, After a couple of hours, they kind of hung them all up there for everyone to see, left them there for a couple of hours. Then... After everyone had a chance to be like, oh, someone brought really nice beads. Oh, this person brought a beautiful pot, whatever. Um, Then they took those gifts down again, wrapped all the gifts up into more beaver pelt robes. And then it was time to hang the bone bundles off of the scaffolding. As you recall, after they disarticulated the bones, right, they wrapped them up in beaver pelts into bundles. um, And they hung those bundles off of the scaffolding. While the bones were hanging, other people went down into the pit and lined the entire pit with more beaver pelt robes. So just a side note here. Each one of those robes was made out of 10 beaver pelts. That is a lot Of beaver pelts.
0: It's a lot of beaver pelts.
1: So you have beaver pelts lining the entire pit. You have beaver pelts wrapping up all of the bundles of bones, all of the corpses that couldn't be disarticulated. I mean, this is we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beaver pelts, right? Are there
0: even that many beavers in the world?
1: There were then. (laughs) Um, So think about how symbolic with meaning this would be when pelts were cherished by tribes who were not in trapping country and how cherished they were by the French in Canada, right? The the entire kind of Canada at this point is based on the fur trade. Mm-hmm. The, the entire economy is based right. on the fur trade. Um, and so to take those pelts that they could be making money or trading with mm-hmm. and to bury them in the ground shows you kind of how important solemn is. and important this was, right? Yeah. So once the pit was ready, they carried the bodies that were still whole down into the pit first and laid them out. And this is actually sort of a funny part in the book, because uh, Eric Seaman talks about how you would imagine that this would be incredibly solemn. But actually, it was people just like yelling at each other about how to do it right. Which (laughs) reminds me of how like a family trying to like put up the Christmas tree or like put up a tent when it's at least this was how my family was whenever we went camping. Right. Mm -hmm. People were just screaming at each other about like. That's not where you want the tent, that kind of thing.
0: You're doing the pegs wrong.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Pull it tighter. It's part of why I, to this day, never go camping. I freaking hate it. Okay, so in the center of the pit, they placed three kettles, which symbolically represented the ceremony itself. The, actually, the name of the ceremony in the Wendat language actually directly translated to the word kettle, um, which was sort of the center of daily life in the village, right? Your daily life revolved around the cooking, cooking kettle. Then they broke for the evening, cooking and eating and visiting around the pit.
0: Early the next morning, as they were starting to prepare for the day, it was discovered that one of the bone bundles had let loose from the scaffold and fell into the pit, scattering the bones all over the place with a pretty significant crashing noise. Yikes! Not good! People freaked out because this was a real insult to the spirit. And it might be an ill omen from the spirit world that all was not well. Right. But since the bones had fallen, they also reasoned that this must be meant to be. This must be what the spirits wanted. So everyone ran to the pit and started flinging their bones into the pit with a whole lot of noise and chaos. This is evidence that while there was a structure to the ceremony, it could also be improvised. If the spirits seemed to dictate that they wanted something different, the people were quick to oblige. Right. And in the
1: in the book, um, they talk about the, the Europeans who are watching this. You know, everything is very structured and solemn except for the fighting over where the bodies are supposed to be going. And then all of a sudden in the morning, people are just like, ah, I'm like running around and just like throwing bones into this pit. And so oh the goodness. Europeans are like, what the hell is happening <laughs>
0: once the pit was filled and the scaffolds were empty they were they went to the sides of the pit carefully folded the beaver ropes down over the dead and added sad sleeping nope <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> added sad sleeping mats
1: <laughs> sand
0: oh that makes more sense <laughs> sad sleeping mats <laughs> I didn't know what a sad sleeping mat but I assumed you oh, knew what you were talking sorry. about Okay. and added sand, sleeping mats, and bark. Then the women brought uh, brought containers of corn. Scholars believe that this was to help fortify them on their trip to Ataensik's village, and set them on top of the pit. Then the attendants exchanged gifts with one another, and the feast was over, and people slowly made their way back to their villages. Got it? But we promised that this was going to be about a specific
1: encounter between the Wendat and Europeans and how death worked to help them relate to one another and, of course, highlighted the differences between them. So first, this particular encounter at the 1636 Feast of the Dead was between the Wendat and the French specifically. And even more specifically, a very small group of French Jesuit priests, and even more specifically, one priest in particular named Jean de Brebeuf. Brebeuf. I'm sure that Marissa could pronounce that better, but she can go to hell.
0: (laughs) 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 Blah 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 (laughs) blah blah. blah, blah. (sighs)
1: Sorry.
0: French. Sorry. (laughs) French. You said it. You said it right. French dressing.
1: Jean de Brebeuf arrived in French Canada in 1625 and lived in Wendake among the Wendat as a Catholic missionary. He was relatively well received by the Wendat and lived among them for a number of years. And in fact, we would know nothing about this particular 1636 Feast of the Dead without Brebeuf, who wrote about it in great detail. So much detail, actually. That when the ossuary was located and investigated by anthropologists and archaeologists in the 1940s, they actually confirmed almost all of his account. It turned out to be incredibly factually accurate. Part of the reasons the Jesuits and Brebeuf uh, in particular were accepted was because they practiced what they called the gentle method of conversion to Christianity. They believed that they could work with native people and other non-Christians, adapting their teachings about Christ to fit into pre-existing belief systems. As long as the customs or practices of the culture that they were in contact with weren't in opposition or a violation of Christianity, the Jesuits didn't care about it. This meant that they weren't trying to get them to change the way they dressed or the way they ate or the way they wore their hair, which is so different from so many other missionary groups. Do you see my question to you?
0: Yeah, but you didn't ask it. I So you, oh, this is a question you're asking me in the script. Well, I'm
1: asking you. Are Mormons different? I, I was wondering. I was thinking about other missionary groups. Like, the, you, I know that we did an episode going way back to History Buffs about Mormon missionaries going mm-hmm. into the um Pacific. Islands. Pacific um, and I was also thinking about that book the qu- a question of who mm-hmm. and aren't they jesuits
0: they are jesuits so in the question of who was it was it a similar situation well the jesuits who first went to china like mateo ricci he mm-hmm. was very much the what would you call it? the soft the gentle way the gentle, the gentle method, method. Mm-hmm. yeah the soft, the soft conversion <laughs> the well yeah i mean jesuits. it's Okay. You have the sniffles? Mm-hmm. Do you want a tissue? I do.
1: I'm sorry. I don't, I'm trying not to make this take longer.
0: On the side table. Um, so they initially were very much about the gentle method of conversion, but then ultimately they got the official word from the Pope who was like, no, you can't do whatever you want. Christianity is, or Catholicism is only what I say it is, and it ain't what you're doing, so right. you better quit it. Or else you're all excommunicated.
1: Right. Sorry.
0: So he said no. I don't know about Mormons. If what I don't think they make uh, allowances for... Culture. Culture. But they, I mean, they do learn the local languages, mm-hmm. which was certainly more than what the Catholics were doing, because mm-hmm. they continued to preach in Latin, or to do their masses in Latin. So
1: mm-hmm. that would have been
0: a major component of a cultural barrier mm-hmm. between... Christian missionaries and or Catholic missionaries versus Mormon missionaries.
1: Right. And and as we'll see, as we kind of go through this, um, what you were talking about in China actually is
0: what similar
1: to what happens here in French Canada. Yeah. Of course, I, we don't want to make it sound as though the Jesuits were like totally cool and just embraced all cultural difference. And, you know, they were not... Um, forcing their beliefs upon this tribe which of course they were. Mm-hmm. Um but in this particular case of the Wendat comparatively they were pretty accepting and adaptable.
0: So at first the feast of the dead and the ways that the Wendat treated the dead in general was a powerful way for the Jesuits and the Wendat to relate to one another. The Jesuits were deeply touched by how much the natives seemed to honor their dead and how lovingly and respectfully they cared for dead bodies. Almost more so than the French who buried their dead, especially of the poor or marginalized in crowded cemeteries that were treated with little respect. Seaman talks about people cutting through the cemetery as a shortcut or using the cemetery grounds for various activities. Nothing like the deep respect the Wendat showed for their dead. So Brabuff actually was impressed with how well they treated the dead. This helped to make them look more... Well, for lack of a better word, civilized and civilizable. Right. It also seemed to have the potential for an in with them. Maybe the Jesuits could use death and dying and the Wendat beliefs and spirits and the spirit world to help sell Catholicism. And on the other hand, Catholic death practices made a lot of sense to the Wendot. Catholics also believed in bones as touchstones and repositories of spiritual power. As some of you might already know, Catholics believed in the use of relics, small objects, bits of clothing, but often bones or other human remains as conduits between the human world and the spirit world. They also told the Wendat stories about the cleansing and saving power of the blood of this powerful man named Jesus, which fit into their existing understanding of the way that blood helped to create the natural world. Perfect. So for instance, i
1: um, talking about Catholic relics here um, in my old church, where I grew up, we had a tiny fragment of a finger bone of St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, the saint after whom the church was named. And there are lots of Catholic ossuaries in Europe, some of which even have the disarticulated bones of dead Catholics sort of worked up into fancy designs and things like chandeliers and there are entire altars that are made just out of skulls so there's actually a lot of kind of similarities between the way that the Wendot deal with bones and the way that catholics deal with bones which is i think super
0: fascinating and actually so those death practices helped the two vastly different cultures relate to one another at least at first right
1: but in the end, this way of relating to, to each other actually failed. Conflicts arose over the conversion of Wendats to Catholicism for a number of reasons. First, the Jesuits got really, started to get really particular. For example, a serious conflict was over where to bury the dead who converted. And so as just a, a quick side note here, um, very often the Jesuits would only be successful in converting someone right as they were dying. So this Only was happening in kind of extreme moments anyway. Um, But then when the person did die, the families of the dead who were converted to Catholicism felt that they needed to have this traditional Wendat burial. This was necessary to release the spirits. But the Jesuits, on the other hand, firmly believed that once someone was converted and was Catholic, the dead needed to be buried in consecrated ground. Um, And while the Jesuits did have some success in converting people, they also scared and angered some other Wendats who were distrustful of the fact that the Jesuits didn't seem to get as sick as often as the Wendats. And the Wendats were getting sick more and more and more often through the 1630s and 1640s as increasing populations of Europeans brought diseases to the New World that the native populations did not have immunities to. Breboeuf and his brothers, his Jesuit brothers, however, were immune to things like smallpox and other diseases that they had been exposed to as children in disease ridden France. But I just want to pause there to let the disease ridden France thing really take effect. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> The Wendat thought that the Jesuits might be inflicting those diseases, like they actually might be causing people to have those diseases, especially because they often converted people um, right at the end of their lives. So they thought maybe they're making them sick so that they'll, they will die, so that they will convert to be more like the Jesuits who aren't getting sick out of desperation. Does that make sense? It doesn't,
0: to be fair. They were sort of actually the ones inflicting the disease. Exactly,
1: yeah. right? They were the ones that were bringing this disease, really. And finally, as kind of a, 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 the straw that kind of broke the camel's back here, um, the tribe was under increased strain as their rival Iroquois became more and more powerful through this period and began to raid Wendat villages, killing and destroying. So they're under pressure and strain from these epidemics and they're under pressure and strain from these um, military attacks. A good example of how this conflict played out is a particularly zealous convert named Chouantinhua. He sort of fell in love with Christ and with Christianity. Um, He was obviously converted not at the end of his life, but while he was in good health. And Chouantinhua was incredibly enthusiastic about helping the Jesuits however he could. He even helped them to preach to other Wendats and was chosen to perform a particular honor by going to visit some nuns. And on the way back, he was tasked with carrying the bones of saints, relics, back to the Jesuits. He took this incredibly seriously. And if you think about it, this would have made a lot of sense to him. Um, He would have seen his friends and family perform similar actions with the bones of fellow villagers, carrying them in those sacred bundles to their new resting places for things like the Feast of the Dead, right? So as he's traveling, he's talking to the bones. He's praying over them. He's asking the saints... Um, whose bones they were, to intercede on his behalf with God and with Jesus, the Wendat words for bone and spirit were almost identical. So to him, the bones of the Catholic saints were the same thing as being in contact with their spirits, being in contact with the, the spirits of these incredibly holy people um, and being close to the spirit world itself, whether you called it a 10 village or if you called it heaven, right? And in the end, um, none of this praying worked out for uh, he was found murdered. And it's quite likely that the culprits were actually scared and angry Wendats trying to send a message to Christian converts to kind of beware. And as Seaman points out, Chouantinois was murdered on the outskirts of the village with no witnesses, but in a place where his body would be easily found. This was how Wendats Took care of shamans who were suspected of practicing black magic, so it's mm. very likely they were trying to send a message.
0: Hmm. As time went on, relations soured yet more. In 1649, the rival Iroquois Haudenosaunee raided the Wendat village of St. Louis, and Brebeuf was and a fellow Jesuit were taken prisoner. As a result, they were ritually tortured. Remember, we mentioned that ritualistic sort of torture yeah. that they would do to enemies. And then killed. A famine racked the remaining Wendat. Sure. The tribes split up and portions traveled to new homelands. Some to Quebec, others to modern day Detroit, later to Ohio, and then to Kentucky, to Oklahoma. Some changed their name and became the Wyandot. Wyandot. Oh. Wyandot. Sometimes they join together with other tribes. To- today, they exist in four major bands. The Huron-Wendat Nation of Wendaki, the Wyandotes of Oklahoma, the Wyandots of Oklahoma, and the Anderdon-Wyandots of Michigan.
1: I may have that wrong there. I have that there's two groups from Oklahoma. I might have the, that mixed up. And if so, I'll make sure that I mention it in the Where's show notes. Where's the
0: Kentuckyites? Um...
1: Well, the Kentuckyites ended up going to Oklahoma as well, which oh. was Indian territory. Oh. Um, um, and I just want to mention quickly that first one, the Huron-Wendat Nation of Wendake, that's the tribe, uh, the portion of the tribe that ends up in what is modern day Quebec. Um, excuse me, Quebec. Quebec! Um, so they're the really the only ones that are remain in Canada. In the 1990s, some Wendats discovered that the bones that had been buried in the 1636 Feast of the Dead had been disinterred and were being held in the Royal Ontario Museum.
0: Oh, no.
1: Right. Remember we mentioned in the 1940s there were those archaeological digs that Mm -hmm. confirmed everything that Brebuff had written. After they had dug up those bones, as archaeologists and anthropologists are wont to do, they kept those bones to continue to study them, and they stored them in the museum. So together, these groups joined forces, those, those individual now um, sort of bands of the Wendat, joined forces to insist that the bones be reburied. After all, while cultures have changed, they've, they've evolved over time, they still believed strongly in the spiritual power of bones, and having them held in a museum was a violation of that sanctity. And it continues to be there are still native bones uh, held in museums. This is a very long story that hopefully at some point we can come back to. I'd love to talk more about this. Mm -hmm. So in another really amazing confluence of events and confluence of cultures, the modern-day Wendat descendants decided to gather in the heart of their old lands in what was once Wendake to perform a reconciliation ceremony, to kind of bring all those four current tribes together and sort of heal some of the um, wounds of um, anger that had existed between them and in that same territory where they returned to exists a reliquary Catholic reliquary that holds the bones of several North American Jesuit saints they call them the, Nor- the North American saints mm-hmm. um, but most especially it holds half of the skull of Jean de Brébeuf. they cut his head in half down the middle, because they wanted to be able to preserve it so that they could set it up so you could see his face. Do you know what I mean? So they could set it up against like a um, like a board or something so you could see his face, but they wanted to be able to do that as much as they could, so they cut it in half. They could have one in one place and one in another. Are you following what I'm saying? You're giving me
0: a weird look. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I guess. I'm just trying to wrap my head around looking at his face. Was it like... In skin? profile. Did they have the skin? Oh, no.
1: They they tried to. And they, they did keep it that way for a while, but obviously they couldn't preserve it forever. Um, and so now they just have half of the skull of Jean de Brabuff. So this... Um, Ceremony takes place in um, the late 1990s. Different bands of the Wendat come together, apologize to one another for their differences and arguments. And really, I think most amazingly, the representatives of the Catholic Church were there and they actually apologize to the Mm -hmm. Wendat for their role in the downfall of the tribe. And also amazingly, one of the leaders of one of those four tribes was named Chawantinhua. (gasps) I know. Isn't this really strange? And then it gets even more powerful. Finally, in August of 1999, the Wendat joined together in the exact spot where Jean de Brebeuf had seen the original burial pit in 1636, 350 years earlier. And they gently and respectfully delivered the bones of their ancestors into another beaver pelt lined pit. They covered the bones up with sand and then they closed the pit. A new pit. Yes, but they buried the pit in the same place. Mm. Or they, excuse me, they dug the pit in the same place. So they were reenacting mm-hmm. this Feast of the Dead right. 350 years later cool. by reburying them, kind of adding this third layer of burial to yeah. the story.
0: It's not really creepy. But I mean, it, I think
1: it—it it, it is a little creepy in that we today don't have that kind of contact with dead bodies. I mean, unless you are in a particular field, right, unless you're in a medical field, unless you work uh, like Elizabeth in a, um, what's it called, Elizabeth?
0: Mortuary? Mor- morgue. It, unless
1: you work like Elizabeth in a morgue or- Not in, anymore. In, she
0: doesn't work there anymore. No, I know,
1: but I mean, in the past. Yeah. Um, unless you are in one of those fields, right. you don't have direct contact with the dead. Even when one of our loved ones dies, we call in professionals to do that. To do the
0: handling of it. That's
1: what I mean. We don't – a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, we would have washed those bodies. We would have dressed those bodies. We would have prepared them for burial. Today we don't do any of that. We kind of have divorced ourselves from contact with the dead. And so I think the creepiness factor for us today Mm -hmm. comes in when we think about not the initial burial – but the second burial where you have to go, first of all, those bodies aren't being buried, right? right? They're, they're, be, they're sitting on on scaffolding. Mm-hmm. So you're walking by every day past the cemetery and you can see your mom or your kid or your dad sure. up on the scaffold. I mean, they're wrapped mm-hmm. and in kind of a bark coffin. But then you have to go back out there 10, two, ten years later, mm-hmm. take them down. And then physically remove the flesh from their bones, yeah, that part disarticulate is... their bodies, and all done with the utmost of love and respect and and powerful symbolic meaning,
0: right? Um, but at the same time, it might have been a little bit easier ten years later because you're so much further removed from that immediate loss. I don't know about a year later. Sure, that but was still I fucked me up.
1: And perhaps, like you say, ten years later, they would look less like right. your loved one. But I don't think that we can downplay how intense that would be to mm-hmm. to touch the bones of someone that you loved. Um, is uh, has to be a really intense experience. But that seems creepy to us, is what I'm trying to say. That that can seem creepy to us because we don't touch bones every day, right? Sure. Unless you are Doctor Bones, right? Um, yeah, she
0: touches bones every day. Um,
1: unless you're Temperance Brennan. But in our day-to-day life, we don't have that tight kind of immediate physical contact with dead bodies. And so that's where I think that we can easily sort of dismiss this as creepy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is, in a sense, creepy. I mean, this is part of our creepy <laughs> series. Sure. Um, but at the same time, um, what I think is compelling about the story is how not all that different the wendat and the catholic at the time rituals were Mm -hmm. right i mean the the catholics were also disarticulating bodies they were also removing flesh from bones they were also saving bones they also believed that bones held spiritual significance
0: but only of special people right
1: in in they had the most spiritual significance but mm-hmm. those ossuaries aren't filled with the bones of saints mm. they're filled with the bones of just catholics
0: mm.
1: you know those altars made out of skulls that's a that's, that's, a, lot that's a lot of saints yeah they are creepy and you can go visit them yeah and someday i would like to and touch them um but to them when they built them they weren't building them for creep factor, right? They weren't building them for tourists to come and see them and be like, ew, how creepy were these people, right? This right. was incredibly spiritually significant to mm-hmm. them.
0: I'd like to know when we, as a American culture, European culture, started uh, creepifying skeletons and bones and making, you know, like the corpse bride kind of stuff. I, I'm gonna say that it has a lot to do with the 19th
1: century i mean the 19th century as elizabeth and marissa just talked about you still did have a lot more intimate connection to the dead through the photography and things like that it's in the early 20th century the first half of the 20th century when we start cleansing death of all of that,
0: come over here. <laughs> when, when we start... start making it a
1: business, we start making it a business. Ding, ding, exactly. Ding.
0: That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's the commodification of death, which we talked about yes. in the the rural cemetery movie. Yes. Oh, when yeah, yeah, when yeah. it becomes a uh, a capitalistic. So there's now embalmers that you pay to embalm, and there's, you know, the funeral director, and this, and the other, and as you start paying other people to do these things, you're further and further removed, so you can make it a creepy thing. You can turn what was once just part of life life into a creep factor. Right. Right.
1: I mean, in the 19th century, you do have you know skeletons and things you know and you also i mean that has a
0: guys i forget if you talked that has a creep um, factor to it but not in the same way the spirit photography you know how they started you started taking pictures of ghosts in the background right
1: yeah where you would take a pic there's didn't mary todd lincoln do this yes yeah mary todd lincoln had a photograph taken where it was like her sitting in a chair and then There was, like, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln hovering (laughs) over her and, you know. Which
0: I think we should do a podcast on. The reason that we kept it very minimal with the mortuary photography was so that we could do other longer podcasts. Right. And
1: because those two things are very different. Right? Right. Absolutely. In one, you actually have a dead body. In another, someone is bullshitting you.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Sorry. I'm totally talking about that on Wednesday in my lecture, so that's why it was on my brain.
1: Um... But yeah, I, I yeah. would like to also talk about another future episode to come back to, as Elizabeth said, this commodification of death and talk mm-hmm. more about what that process was like and how um, even the ways that we bury the dead. The the, the movement that comes after the rural cemetery movement right. is where you have cemeteries that are flat yeah. and you're not allowed to have ostentatious yeah. statuary to mark the death. You're like just the supposed one to, down the road from me. Exactly. You're just supposed to ignore it. It's just
0: like a park.
1: Yeah. Pretend it's not actually about death, Mm -hmm. which is how we get to where we started this podcast with funerals where people are somber and desperately trying to not act sad. Right. No ostentatious shows of grief, no screaming, no crying, no going, my my cousin is dead and my mommy is dead and my uncle is dead. Right.
0: And my dog. Um, Even
1: though on the inside,
0: that might be actually how you feel, Mm -hmm. but you're not allowed to
1: display that. that, Right.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dig. Um, We hope you enjoyed this uh, installation of our um, Creep series. Installation? You mean installment? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Same thing. Is it like sand and sad? Yeah. Um, Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at Dig History. Um, If you haven't yet, please subscribe. Subscribe. Because that's the best way to make sure you have an episode when we create it. And it drops right into your phone bank or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, also, did you know that we have a super cool swag store? Because we do. And you can buy weird gear that has our logo on it. Including underpants. Underpants that say do it like a Puritan. Because how else are you going to do it? Right. Um, it is written on the butt. So that is an in- indication of how you should be doing it like yep. a Puritan. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks for joining us. We will see you next time. Peace. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Digg, Elizabeth garner Mazerick, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. You can find show notes and further reading, as well as the archive for the History Bus podcast at digpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history, and on Facebook at digpodcast. Thanks for listening. It's not fair. Good, good episode, bro. Ooh, my hand was sweaty. Sorry, I stuck a little bit there. Um. In Tibet, some people practice sky bur bur, bur- Sky burials. Burials? Burials. Burials. Doesn't that word look like burials? Nope. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: but they also were intermediaries on the fur trade, acting as a sort of middleman, which is what intermediary means. <laughs> oh my god. You can take that off. Okay. Uh, but they... <laughs> Sorry. The so arrow. No, I can't say arrow. <laughs> Ossuary? Ossuary? I've never seen that before. Right. That's what I thought.
1: Even though I said it wrong. (laughs) I swear.
0: There's more than one animal out
1: there. It does. I'm
0: scared. What if there is?
1: It sounded like somebody was coming in.
0: Oh my god!
1: I didn't know whether you were coming or not. I was was like, who is is here? here? You were talking. (laughs) I didn't realize you were coming. Okay. Oh my God! I just
0: almost died. Are are y'all scaring yourselves? Yeah. My heart. I'm so sorry. Your dog, your guard dog, sucks. Well, yeah. Well, at least
1: we heard her wiggling around.